0: And here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. My name is Eddie Cohn, the host, the creator of The Spiritual Spiral. Today, I am thrilled to welcome writer, author, David DeSola to the podcast. No discussions of COVID-19, no discussions really too much of social media. Instead, we are going to talk about this amazing book that I just read by David called Alice in Chains, the Untold Story. And I think about a month ago, I, of course, went onto Amazon, searched for some books that I wanted to read, obviously, since we're going to be spending so much time at home. And I didn't type in Alice in Chains, but it probably was from, based on a previous search because I really was in this world of reading a lot of memoirs from a lot of my favorite bands Scott Weiland, Neil Young the Wilson sisters from heart I sort of went into this phase of reading one memoir after another regarding bands that I absolutely love. And so this one, Alice in Chains showed up in my feed and I just right away had to buy it. And the funny thing is, is that I hadn't ever known that a book came out about Alice in Chains. And so I read the book within a couple of weeks and I reached out to David and He immediately got back to me and he was down to talk to me, so I was stoked. So it really, it's funny, I think I needed this book right now because it really took me away from what I'm feeling right now culturally. It really brought me back to the 90s. It reminded me about how amazing Alice in Chains was. I was a freshman in college and at the time my roommate was from Seattle and he brought all this amazing music down. This was right at the precipice when the Seattle grunge scene was about to take off. So it felt like I was reliving my 90s days. It was just freaking awesome reading this book and the amount of details that David finds. And it's sort of a sad... Obviously, there's a sad ending, per se, I guess you could say, because Lane obviously ends up uh, overdosing and dying. So it's a really sad story in some regards, but it's also just a beautiful story about an amazing band. They ended up getting back together and making making more records together and they're on tour. And it seems like they're alive and kicking better than ever. So that's really actually exciting news, but it just was really really brought me back to my back to back to college days, post-college 90s and just how much I was in Nirvana and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Of course, Pearl Jam. I, I just I think that music was so life-changing for me. And this was so far before social media and technology taking over the world. I just remember driving or walking down the beach or going to class and just listening to records from beginning to end. And it's just powerful music. And I don't know if we will ever hear music like grunge again. And besides just the music, there was just a cultural phenomenon happening where people just were absorbed with amazing lyrics, songwriting, music. It was just an amazing, amazing time to get into music. And I it's—I will never forget those days. And so it was really nice to relive that experience with David as I as I not only read the book, but got to speak with him. So it's a great talk about Alice and Chains, what inspired him to, to write the book. Anyway, the book is called Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. If you were into grunge, if you were Alice, into Alice in Chains or Soundgarden, I highly recommend the book. Again, it's from David DeSola. And if you dig the show, please head over to iTunes, give it a review, give it a five-star. You can reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter at Eddie Cohn and say hello. Remember, I'm teaching all my yoga classes online right now on my YouTube channel. So hit me up on Instagram and I'll send you the links for all the yoga classes. And that is it. As always, thank you so much for listening. And being a part of the downward facing spiritual spiral again, thank you so much to David for taking the time to talk to me. I hope you guys dig the sh- uh, hope you guys dig the conversation as much as I did. So yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening and supporting the downward facing spiritual spiral podcast. So, you know, I have to say I was really pleasantly surprised, not that I had low expectations, but I was really <laughs> blown away by your book about Alice and Chains. And um, I just it was a it, it had to have be it had to have been a huge undertaking. I mean, the amount of details in this book just blew me away.
1: Oh, uh, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, it was a uh, roof. <laughs> Let's see. So I got the idea in the summer of 2011. I started working on it full time in the fall. Well, wait, hold so, on. Let me. Just,
0: I don't want to interrupt, but I'm, of course I did. What yeah. What is going on in 2011, or in your mind? Because you know, to to Because I get the sense that you're working for CNN. You're sort of more on the well. N- well, like I, <laughs> how do okay, you go? You know, how do you get inspired? Yeah, yeah. You know, to do this.
1: I just finished. The first year of a two-year graduate program at Georgetown. Okay. Uh, I was. Uh, I have left my job at CNN. I was working for a friend at 60 Minutes as an intern. In order to get any sort of credit for it, I had to do an independent study course, accredited independent study course at Georgetown. So basically, I'm working, you know, 40 hours a week, five days a week, and I'm going to classes two nights a week, okay. and I'm doing that for an entire summer. So. I had a lot of my plate basically is what I'm trying to get at here. Right. And so on top of all, so that meant I had a lot of work that I had to take home, uh, from school and from 60 minutes. So there were, there were a lot of, there was a lot of burning of the midnight oil, uh, on the home front. Yeah. And one night I put on the dirt album for the first time in ages. We're talking probably years here, literally. And I just, you know, again I played it all the way through because I just I forgot about it I just sort of you know went all the way through the whole thing and at the end of it, I'm like okay this, that was a good record yeah and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting over there and I'm like well you know I, I, at that point I finished I'm like well you know Lane's been dead for almost 10 years somebody's gotta to read something right so I start looking for it looking for looking on Amazon Google wherever. I didn't find anything along the lines of what I was looking for. So at that point, besides a job and graduate school, uh, I had the utterly insane idea of doing it myself. Hmm. So that's how it started. Um, obviously, I wasn't gonna, you know, pack up and leave school and work and everything. I mean, you know, I still had all those things going on. So by August, when the when the summer session rolled around, I got I had about I had a three week window in between the end of my summer school and internship and the start of the fall term Uh, so that's when i really started working on it um i did my first reporting trip to seattle i did my first round of interviews keep in mind i was living in virginia at the time living dc so it wasn't you know i couldn't do something like that like on weekends or anything like that i had to you know, go there for a pretty set chunk of time.
0: Did anybody sort of give you a, a blessing or give you support? L- like, oh, this is a great idea. Or, I mean, did you have like a manager or agent? Talk-
1: that, that, are we talking about the band or just in general? Well, my
0: social yeah, I mean, both. I mean, I'm getting to the band. But yeah, did anybody give you some sort of because, you know, I've been writing a book for a couple of years now. And to, to take a chance on this without – Either the yeah right. is, is a huge endeavor,
1: uh, right? Yeah. Well, the answer is uh, I had no agent, I had no manager, I had no professional representation at that time. my My idea was, okay, I'm going to go look into this, and worst case scenario, I would probably turn it into an article or a series of articles to publish <laughs> in some form or another later on. So that was going to be most my Worst case scenario, I had I I would have read a couple of books, did a couple of interviews, maybe taken one or two trips, and if that's all that ever came to it, then I would just sort of take whatever material I found and 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 publish it in some sort of presentable form, right? Which you know, in theory, is probably what I should have done first. But I mean, again, I just went with it, man. I had I had the time, I had the energy, I had the thankfully I had the resources. Um. So I just sort of went with it, and and, uh, so I did that first trip. Uh, I met with a couple people from those – I met with several people yeah, um, on and off the record. You know, they just told me, you know, keep going. So I did. Um, Obviously, because I was on the other coast, most of my interviews were by phone, although I tried – when I went – I'd go there for like seven or ten days at a time. I did like five or six trips total over three years. So I tried to – you know, I always try to make s- time to, to meet with somebody over there. The other thing I found early on was that sometimes I would just get a random lead or through sheer dumb luck, I would find something and things that just I couldn't have planned on or whatever. So I always I always figured like, okay, if if I could always do an interview over the phone, worst case scenario. Right. But like I tried to budget my time so that whenever I was on the ground in Seattle, like I could, it was so I could do the stuff that I could only do while I was physically there, right? That I had to physically see something or if I got a lucky lead somewhere. Just, you know, one example here. um, I did... That first trip, I went to Lane's former apartment, it was, it was his home for the final years of his life. I kind of just sort of tried to reverse engineer it. Basically, I was like, I, I looked at that whole neighborhood, which was in the I don't know if you know Seattle, the University District.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I look, I walked around that whole neighborhood, and just sort of tried to imagine, you know, what Lane Staley would have would have been like if you know if this was his his neighborhood right and so what i found was that a he had pretty much everything he needed within walking distance if he had to get it himself or more likely somebody else had to get it for him you know again the first thing i did like a half a block away from his house like i turned the corner and there's this bar there called the blue i forget the name of it Mm -hmm. um i'd have to look it up but uh i walked into the bar and Lo and behold, sure enough, he had he would occasionally just walk in there, sit by himself, and drink a beer. One of the my sources that I met was a guy who he works in construction or cleaning, like whatever. and so he had not only had he seen Lane in that bar, but he would also—he was also uh, part of the cleanup crew that got hired to to go through his apartment, uh, clean up his apartment for sale after he died.
0: Besides, just tell the story, and, and here's the thing with my angle, and and I don't want to get too into me, but I was a huge fan. I was freshman roommates with somebody from Seattle, who, okay. and this was when grunge really nobody knew what the fuck was going on. It just, he comes down with like demos and, and like, Uh, nobody outside of Seattle knew what was going on. And then during that like year, Pearl Jam gets on Saturday Night Live. And then I was a huge Van Halen fan and he's like, Oh my God, I have to go to that show. And I'm thinking, Oh, because he loves Van Halen. He goes, no, because Allison Chains was opening for them. And so we, I know. So we went to that show and went there early and I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? And, and it blew me away. And I got in. And so he brings like, you know, all these, Records uh, like Bleach, the one before Nevermind, um, and Soundgarden. And it, it was just – it opened up my world to music that was about to take off.
1: So you were the right place at the right time. So oh, was your roommate
0: apparently. totally. He just introduced – and then so Dirt comes out in 92. And it's such a dark, telling, very transparent record about this guy's spiral into drug addiction.
1: Well, some, some of it, just, just remember that, uh, the songs that Jerry wrote generally weren't about drugs. Um, but like the thing is like, I guess, because of the whole sort of haul on that record, that cloud over that record, even people think that like down in a hole is about drugs. It wasn't, it was about Jerry's girlfriend, you know, but Jerry, Jerry wrote the lyrics to that song, but everyone thinks it's, you know, about, you know, despair, drug addiction, whatever. No. Um, uh, but remember, I was well, thinking,
0: I was thinking of like junkhead and dirt. I mean, there just seems to be such a suicidal yeah. drug. Oh
1: I, yeah. But well, what was re- remember? I, Lane Lane was already a full blown heroin addict by this point. When he goes to make that record, he's yeah. already been to rehab at least once. Um, and I can't remember if it was Junkhead or Sick Man, one of those two. But he brought in the lyrics to the, that song already finished, but he had no music to it. So I mean, that was his headspace. That was where he was at when he was writing because, I mean, he had, you know, he was already he was already using. Uh, he was sneaking out past curfew in the middle of the LA riots to score dope. He'd also written two songs that had music, like um, Hate to Feel an Angry Chair. He had written the music, but they had no lyrics, and he wrote those while they were in the studio making the record. So um, he was in a pretty dark space mentally and creatively for that record.
0: What were you hoping to bring to light, or were you just wanting to tell the story? And then again, I think the band—you didn't really have the band's blessing with this book.
1: Nope, <laughs> far from it. So, like, did <laughs> but the-
0: did you try to get their blessing, and they were just like, "No Many way. times. Okay.
1: Many times. I never heard. I never heard back from any of them or, or their representatives. Uh, Lane's mother uh, declined to be interviewed. Um, I did have conversations with her, but ultimately, she declined to be interviewed. Phil Staley, I spoke to. His representative, a lawyer. The impression that I got was, like, "I'll get back to you if he's interested," and I never heard back, so I took that as a no. Yeah. So um, I spoke to a uh, Gail Star. was super nice about it. She was very encouraging, uh, but ultimately she she turned me down. Uh, I think because you know the rest of the band wasn't involved. You know, so it just it's one of those things where most people were like, "Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, go for it." Um, and the band was like, you know, they just didn't want anything to do with it and why do you think that is? I have my own theory, my own educated guesses for it. I will without getting into specifics, I will say that I wasn't the first guy to come around pitching them on the idea of a book. Um I will say that they've they've passed on other on other offers. Uh, I was just the only guy that was dumb enough to go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. I, even though I, I've never heard from her, you know, almost 10 years later, I've never heard back from Susan Silver. But once the project got underway, I had, her, I had a private email from another source. And so I'd email her periodically when they're saying, like, hey, the book is finished, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is my deadline. If you want to talk, you know, I would assume they were at least aware of what was going on, at least through that channel. But again, I've never heard back from her one way or the other. So I, I couldn't tell you. That's pure speculation from my point. All that I can say is that, you know, there were, I pursued them through multiple points of contact and I never heard anything back except for those specific cases where wasn't. there were people within the band itself. It was like laying and Mike's families, basically.
0: Even you know I wasn't a member of the band, and but it it did relive the experience of my love for that music, the time, a place in my life, and then the tragedy when he ultimately kills himself. And so maybe those are just such raw, heavy wounds that yeah. they just didn't want to relive again. I mean, I I don't know. But
1: I I would I would have to assume. I think that would be a fairly safe safe assumption to make. But again, um, I mean they've. If you look at, like, the interviews that they were doing with Black Gives Way to Blue, which was their first album of new material um, with William, um, you know, they talk about some of this stuff. And then I think they stopped talking about it. So I just I don't know if it was just too, too was still too raw or what. But, I mean, you have to figure. And also, I mean, you know, even though Lane gets all the attention for being the lead singer or whatever, keep in mind, I mean, Jerry had his issues. Mm-hmm. Sean had issues. Um, you know, I mean, I, I quoted Demry Lane's girlfriend's mother, <laughs> Lane's girlfriend. Uh, her mother told me that, you know, one of the things that, that Lane resented was that feeling that he was sort of the poster child for, you know, bad behavior in Alice in Chains when all the other guys had their own issues. But it, it, it certainly wasn't ju- just them, although Lane's Lane just had a very severe case of addiction that ultimately he wasn't able to overcome. I think it definitely did uh, does touch on a couple of nerves there in that respect. But ultimately, that was my responsibility as an author. I mean, if I didn't cover that aspect of their story, it would be a whitewash.
0: I think you did an amazing job. And I think you should be applauded, not just for – I thought you did it and told the story in a very informative but also really sensitive way. And it, right. and it, yeah. was, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't exploitive. It was just trying to share a story that has a tragic ending. And it's weird. I realized the band is still performing, but, it, and I don't want this to sound insensitive, but I tried listening to those new albums and it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have that power that the music had when Lane was singing.
1: It's they, they they have their they have their moments of, of brilliance with William and sometimes like I mean if you aren't listening if 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 you just you know listen to some live recordings of some of the old Alice material, um, I mean sometimes he just flat out nails it. I mean, especially with some of the more difficult songs like Love Hate Love or Damn That River where he's really belting it out. You know, but obviously the, the chemistry changes, the material changes. Um, I think Jerry writes most of the material now, lyrically yeah. speaking. Well, have, not having interviewed them and spoken to them about how this creative this creative process differs from the previous one, I, 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 I can't say beyond more than what they've already they themselves have said in interviews.
0: Yeah, but yeah, um, but you brought up something that I the very first thing that you almost said, and I wrote I recorded a podcast about this almost when my podcast started, comparing the '90s to music now. And there was something about like the grunge scene and listening to dirt from beginning to end, listening to 10 and verses. And there was this collective cultural pulse that just was so powerful. And I don't know if that will ever be replicated again, where people are actually able to absorb and listen to full length records and have the attention span I just—it goes beyond just Alice in Chains having a new lead singer. There was just a something going on that you, you just maybe will never right. be, be never replicated again.
1: Yeah, I mean, my my personal take is um, I think that you know Seattle in the '80s was sort of just a very interesting. I mean, again, right place at the right time. I mean, you had all these factors that were sort of contributing to this little music scene. Um, you know, you have this element of, I think, geographic isolation. I mean, Seattle was a, it was a back market back in the day where, you know, it wasn't the major mainstay. It was, it, you know, it is, it is now, but in those days it was, you know, l- lumber and aviation. I mean, there was no tech boom. There was no, um, anything you have, uh, radio, you have local radio stations, you have local media, like the rocket, uh, you have sub pop records. You've got all these little clubs and venues for where local bands can go play and, and hone their craft. Um, before, the, before that, you had the Metropolis, which I covered briefly, which was a very uh, formative part of Susan Silver's life and career. You know, you have all these little local musicians who some some of them some who got famous, some who didn't, but they were basically. Uh, sitting over there playing music for themselves and to themselves and their peers and you know i think i think it was buzz osborne who once said you know there's plenty of rain so there's a lot of time to spend in your basement you know working on songs <laughs> you know and so you know all these things that were sort of mutually reinforcing and the fact that it wasn't that cutthroat competitive mentality of say new york or los angeles where it was more of a Mutually reinforcing, mutually supportive little scene where everyone sort of supported it and went out to watch each other's bands. And then, uh, you know, people bands broke up, they reformed. You know, that if you you know follow the little sort of family tree from you know Green River to you know Mother Love Bone to Pearl Jam to Mud Honey, and you know follow that that lineage, it's actually quite fascinating to see all the degrees of separation there. Yeah.
0: I just don't think anything like that will ever happen again. And you just said yeah. so, you said something that was really interesting, you know, people would go into their basements and write and play music and now people are going to go into their basements and stare at Instagram all day.
1: Uh or, or they can actually record a, because of technology they can also record a full blown album. Right. Uh too. so it's it, it goes both ways. Um of course the big loser for that it would be the old the old studio system, right? The old line studios. Like Studio X, which closed down not too long ago, unfortunately. Uh, Formerly Bad Animals, which is where Soundgarden and Alice in Chains recorded some of their albums. But the other thing I was going to say, just to finish that thought, was that there was, because I think there was no expectation that this would ever get out beyond their little community, Uh, I think because there were no expectations of money or success or MTV or fame or whatever, there was sort of an innocence and an integrity to those early grunge records from the late 80s to up until 91, up until Nevermind, really, up to and including Nevermind, really, that um, I think you just will just never be able to match. I mean, because once, you know, once money and pressure and fame and celebrity and all that other stuff kicks in, you know, it's kind of like the cat's out of the bag. And, you know, also that's where all the cheap imitators and second and third and fourth rate you know uh bands that start popping up but i think those early records i mean there's an integrity mm-hmm. and an innocence uh to all of them
0: what was your intention with writing this book i mean what were you hoping to accomplish
1: one thing. Well, obviously, Lane would be the central character, but obviously, I wanted all all uh, six of them, six band members, uh, being being reflected. Um, and I wanted uh, I wanted to find out how they formed. I wanted to find out, you know, how they were a product of that environment. I wanted to find out how they made the records. Uh, I wanted to find out, you know, because a big part of you know post ninety two. From 1990, well, '94 really, till till he died, I mean, House of Chains basically created they they sort of hunkered down the fort and they created this sort of this no comment policy, right, where they just wouldn't talk about Lane's health or his drug problems or whatever. And so there was just this giant wall of silence uh, surrounding what had been going on behind closed doors in those years. And so that was a big part of what I set out to do was okay, if they weren't talking about it, then. You know, who else was there and who else might have seen something. And that's a big reason why I want to talk to as many, you know, producers and engineers and, you know, studio staff and people who were, you know, there for the tours or the records or whatever behind closed doors and could attest firsthand, you know, what was going on, what were the discussions being had, how were they coping. But ultimately, it was just to tell a story of how these guys almost destroyed themselves and, you know, not everyone lived to tell the tale and how they ultimately uh, came back and chose to continue. You know, not a whole lot of bands are very successful after losing a lead singer like that. Um, you know, the analogy I, I used in the book was a sort of, you know, ACDC or Joy Division, right? And so, you know, Joy Division, Ian dies and uh, you know, they become new order and they become an influential groundbreaking band in their own right acdc they just you know picked up the pieces of brian johnson and they just kept going and they had another that a whole other leg of their career and you know the sad you know reality is the period that brian was in the band the whole period brian has been in the band was in acdc is longer than has been longer than the length of Bon scott's life <laughs> so i mean it's sort of an interesting an interesting two examples and and alice clearly chose to follow jerry said specifically they went with the the acdc model um they're like well it was our band too you know sean once said you know we could change the name of our band to leather snake or something like that right and and people would never call it Leather stink. They'd say, "Oh my God, the Austin Chains guys are playing at the club next weekend. Let's go!" You know, it's it's a it's a brand name. They worked hard at it. They deserved it. It's their band too. Um, so you know, I, I I can't blame them. I mean, it's what they know. It's what they know how to do. And I mean, they Lord knows they were inactive for God knows how long. I can't blame them for wanting to to get off their get off their horse and and, and get back out there and start playing again. The impetus was the, the, the tsunami, the tsunami benefit show, right. but I think sooner or later it would have been something else. That's just my personal opinion on it. But
0: and I'll ask you a few things. I'll, I know you're busy, and I'll let you. Well, maybe with the quarantine, you've got plenty of
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, man.
0: No, but I I was somewhat angry reading the book, and not at you. I I just I think to myself. How long is somebody going to be dealing with drug addiction, depression, whatever it could be where, and look, I, I, I haven't done heroin. I I'm not coming from a place of experiencing that, but gosh, I mean, could other people, and I know this is all hearsay, but could, could other people have gotten involved? Could more have been done? And And it's not just in Lane's case, but I see this, you know, there's these types of stories all the time and,
1: uh, I mean, today it's opioids In yes. those days it was just, you know, heroin. But, um, I mean, I kind of try to get some of that territory. I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the, the person has to just want it. The, the addict in question or the the subject in question has to want to get better and has to want to quit it. I mean, they just, they, they're the ones that have to do all the work keeping, but keeping that in mind, um, you know, in the case of say Andy Wood, who was sort of the precursor to all this, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's you know, it was horrible and it was sad, and it was super depressing and everything. And and at that point Lane hadn't tried heroin yet. I talked to everybody who worked on Facelift on the first Alice record. Everywhere, there's like, no, he was not using it at that point. They all said it flat out. Um, and one of them was Dave Jordan, who produced Dirt later on. So he was, he was there. He he was there. He saw the difference right, right. between you know, one, album one and album two. Um, so I mean, you would think that you know, not just to Alice and Chains, but to anybody else in the Seattle area that was also dabbling in the stuff, that. Andy's death would have been a giant red flag or a cautionary tale or some sort of deterrent saying hey this is what's going to happen to you if you do this you know obviously it wasn't because there you go I mean um, you know the other thing that just kind of boggled my mind was that even in at the music bank before Alice in Chains are famous they're still a local Seattle band um, you know in 1988 probably um, you know some guy at the music bank offers Lane heroin and Lane turns him down Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it was interesting that at that point that, you know, at that point, like, I mean, he did marijuana, you know, cocaine, acid, mushrooms, you know, probably some other stuff as well. But those are just the ones that I could prove that I heard from other people. Right. Right. But he drew the line at heroin. It's interesting that he was like there. He's like, okay, no, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. Now why he ultimately changed his mind a couple of years later and decided to try it, that I was never able to find out. I never you know, I, I I found out what he told his one of his close friends about the first time he tried it, but I never an explanation for why he changed his mind and decided to cross that cross that bridge. You know what I mean? So it's it's one of those Maddening questions that because Lane and so many of those people in that orbit are dead now, we're just never going to find out. I don't think so.
0: You know, it's funny. You took the glass half full stance when I brought up, you know, people right now are in their basements instead of using their guitars, you know, playing, playing new or, you know, writing new music and forming bands. But I do think to create a, movement, a scene. It requires there to be no distraction and requires, you know, guys and women like all being connected by one thing. And in in like a band's case, it would be the music or it would be, you know, poetry or getting better at violin. And of course there are those exceptions where people are right now just hell-bent on getting better at their craft. But I do think technology and that sort of was the originator of my podcast i do think you know people aren't listening to full-length records anymore i i
1: I, no it's singles unfortunately it's a very singles driven culture or or individual downloads i should say even more so these days but um which is a shame um because yeah yeah i mean uh, I'll, i'll give you an example from my own thing i mean you know I've been a Queen fan since forever, right? For years, and I saw um, and uh, I had like their greatest headsets, right? And I thought, okay, I was fine with that. And so I saw the uh, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody when it came out. Within a month, I basically went through Queen's entire '70s catalog, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, wow, there's some real hidden gems here. And uh, so I went through the rest of it and I bought their live records. And sure enough, now like some of my favorite songs are like the Deep Cuts, and uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, and obviously Queen are an exceptional band, I mean, don't get me wrong, but you know, it's it's kind of, I, I always love that feeling of finding that, that that little gem, that little diamond in the rough that gets overlooked somehow and it becomes like your favorite song, you know what I mean? But people aren't thinking of making a complete statement or a record or whatever anymore. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd be fine I'd agree with that.
0: Well, and I just remember back then when Alice in Chains, when my roommate introduces me to Facelift and we go to the show and then like Sap comes out. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't really know Soundgarden very much. And then I am hearing Chris Cornell's on that EP and then Dirt comes out. It just sort of like opens up this world of just – curiosity and new music and going yeah. going And so now it's like those exploratory journeys of getting new music and cons- yeah. it just, it, they don't exist.
1: And that overlap in that, you know, social and professional universe, because at that point Soundgarden and Alice had the same management, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so you have to remember that they're to some extent they are joined at the hip during all this. Um, even though they're two very different bands musically, but they were both, being managed uh, managed under very different circumstances by Susan Silver, you know, really sort of a she does not get enough credit uh, in my opinion, as as much as as she should. I mean, just to handle not one but both of the situations with different dynamics and different personalities and different issues at play. I mean, I don't know, just but to nurture, take two local bands and basically launch them into. You know, turn them into superstars, um, and you know, you know, poster boys for this grunge scene, whatever you want to call it. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, I mean obviously. You know, they wrote the songs, and you know, they worked hard at honing their craft, and they deserve all the success. But um, I, you know, but behind take any any band story that you know, behind any band, there's always a, almost always a good manager to it. You couldn't. I don't think you can completely discount or, or downplay. Her role in not just Alice's success, but Soundgarden's and to some extent Pearl Jam, because remember, she and Kelly Curtis were business partners for a time, even though they weren't her clients. I'm sure they're still, from what I understand, they're all still super close uh, so many years later. So keep that in mind.
0: couple of last things, I'll let you go. You, were you devastated when you heard about Chris Cornell? How, how did you take that? Oh, it was awful.
1: Over the years, I saw Cornell uh, four times um, pre- pre- performing, right? Twice with Soundgarden, twice with Audioslave. Um, the last time I saw him with Soundgarden, I was in London in on, uh, oh yeah, 4th of July of 2014. I had just handed in my manuscript, the... I had handed in the manuscript, the final manuscript for the book, maybe like a couple of weeks earlier. So that was kind of like my my vacation, like treat to myself. Hey, I'm going to go to London, hang out with friends. And um, so we went to this festival in Hyde Park, which for those uh, of your listeners who might not be familiar with it, it's kind of like London's equivalent of Central Park, right? They do this festival there every year called British Summertime. And uh, it's like a week long and every day it's like a – genre of music like one day it's like pop and one day it's hip-hop and one day it's you know hard rock or metal and whatever so uh with my friends over there we went on the hard rock and metal day and so (laughs) the bill that day was uh in order soulfly uh motorhead (laughs) faith no more soundgarden performing the super unknown album in its entirety
0: oh wow and
1: black Sabbath. so that was the last time i saw soundgarden and so, and then a couple of years later, um, I'm living here in Los Angeles, and I got a ticket to the Prophets of Rage uh, inauguration, anti inaugural ball show at a little club in Hollywood. And they, they announced that, that Cornell was going to be there, and they were going to do some audio slave songs. So I went to that show and you know, went there with a friend. We had a great time. It was this great little club downtown. And, you know, everyone had a great time. And lo and behold, you know, I was under the impression that like, wow, these guys are either they're going to get back together and tour or at least they might do some shows or something because they were having a great time. They only did three songs. And lo and behold, little did any of us know that was the last time that we saw the last Audio Slave performance ever. And we yeah. just didn't know it at the time. Four months later, he dies. And the reason they go back to that London show for, in 2014 is that my friend who I went to that show with. It was like 1 or 2 in the morning over here, but he texted me overnight. It's like nine-hour difference from L.A., right? Something mm-hmm. like that. So he texted me overnight at like 2 in the morning with the announcement that Cornell was dead. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I went to um, – I was able to get, get into the uh, – I was able to go to the, – there was a little press pen they had set aside for the service at the cemetery. Yeah, the Hollywood so cemetery. So I was able to get my way in there. And so I was able to – you know, we were at a distance. We could see people who was coming in and who was out through the camera lenses and the shutters and whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a PA system there. We could hear some <laughs> of the speakers better than others. It depends. But, like, because the, it was, the they were targeted. The sound was set up for the people who were at the service, right, not for the press that was, like, 100 feet away, 200 feet away, right? right so right. you could sort of make out some of it. But, yeah, I was at the – I was, but yeah, I was there at the service with the press corps and, you know, and it was, you know, it was heartbreaking and it was just very difficult. Um, and you know, I, I I'm friends with the guy who, uh, Cor- his name's Corbin Reeve. He's, he's got a, he just turned in the uh, final draft of his Cornell biography. It comes out in July, I believe. So mm. look out for that. And, uh, but it was just, oh, it was just one of those wretched feelings never gonna make sense it's never gonna just go away i mean there's a guy who i thought he was gonna be doing this until his 70s and yet, in all indications were that you know he had other plan. he had plans he had plans for performing and for recording and for doing more projects and things like that so for it to just abruptly end that way was just i don't know I, i just feel like i mean obviously besides his family and his kids you know i feel that you know just we collectively as uh as a audience of, of of music fans and lovers of that era and of Cornell's work uh we all got cut short we all got uh I don't want to say I think cheated is putting it too harshly but it just sort of seems like there was a lot more there and and we're just never going to see or hear it and it's just you know I don't know it's it's horrible
0: so what's uh, what's next for you
1: I've been working on on a historical fiction novel right now that I'm having some issues finishing it. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's, I've been working on it for a couple of years now. So, you know, we'll see what, we'll see what happens with that. And then uh, either I'll do book number three or I will go back to work at, you know, CNN or whoever will have me somewhere. I don't know. We'll see. It's all sort of up in the air right now.
0: Well, it's funny because, I bought like five books um, about five weeks ago when this whole pandemic thing started, and, and I, I wasn't intentionally trying to get your book. It just showed up in my <laughs> showed up in my Amazon feed because I didn't realize that there was a book about Alice in Chains, and so I have to say it got me out of this current state and brought me back to the early mid nineties when. It's funny, I've been playing music since I was three, and I played the drums and piano. But it was when my roommate introduced me to Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Screaming Trees, and then seeing the movie Singles. And it did inspire me to start writing songs. And that was a really life-changing, like, three to six years where I went from just kind of, like, playing music to actually writing my own songs. And so reading this book really brought me back to that really wonderful time in my life.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, the 90s were kind of an, were an interesting time, not just Seattle, but in general. And, I mean, you had you know, this competing scene in L.A., you know, with, you know, Jane's Addiction and Tool and Rage Against the Machine. And then you had, you know, the Britpop thing with, like, Oasis and, you know, I don't want to say Radiohead or Britpop, but, you know, they were of the same era. Keep in mind, <laughs> you know, when when Nirvana's Nevermind came out, I was 12.
0: Yeah, no, and then I just last the last few days I've been watching like old YouTube videos of of them in the early '90s and on like on MTV, and it's just music. I just don't think rock. I just don't think that type of music rock. It's funny how. And I'll let you go. I promise. I just I don't think rock music is ever going to be important anymore. It's yeah. just rock music's like like dead.
1: I, I like to think some kid's always going to be in a garage somewhere with an amplifier and a drum set, but you know. Who knows? I mean, as far as newer bands go, one of my favorites is the Struts. That's because I love British seventy like seventies glam rock. Yeah. So I don't know if you did you listen to them at all or not. No, I don't know them. Struts. I'll check uh, it out. They're a British band. They're like, ooh. I mean, they gotta be. They're like millennials, basically. They're like in their thirties or something like that. I don't know, but they. Uh, I saw them at a at the Roxy. But yeah, that's that. But that's one of those newer bands that's definitely gotten a lot of um, a lot of attention lately so you know don't give up hope just yet but, <laughs> right. you know yeah i, I think it just i think it's out there i think it just might not have been discovered yet so yeah. we shall see
0: david thanks for the time dude i, I appreciate you talking. thank you eddie yeah man have a great day
1: thanks you too take you, care stay t- safe thanks dude you too bye bye